Hello, my name is Sean Peterbudge. You are listening to a very special episode of Too Long, Don't Listen. Maybe even a relaunch episode of Too Long, Don't Listen. A few people listening in might remember um, we used to do kind of movies and TV chats via this channel every so often, sort of periodically focusing on different properties and uh, just haven't done one of those for a while for no particular reason. Probably just didn't have the time, to be honest. Um, But I've decided to kind of road test a new concept today which has been floating around, kicking around in my head for a little while now and something I've wanted to do for a little while now but just haven't had the time. Uh, It's sort of occupied a lot of real estate and is draining a lot of RAM from the old noggin these past few weeks and months. Uh, The basic concept is inspired by Mark Hoppus's after-school radio series on Apple Music, which effectively uses music as a means of tethering a conversation and maintaining a theme to that conversation. So it's sort of a podcast slash a mixtape hybrid. Uh, The basic idea for me is I'll pick a genre of movies, maybe an actor, maybe a a composer, maybe a director, and I will talk about and then play um, some of the great soundtrack or standout uses of music from those films, all the while having a bit of a chat about those films. So probably talk a lot of nonsense in between. If you don't understand it, it's probably because I've explained it very poorly. Not to worry, you will get it very, very soon. My first foray into the concept will be to chat about one of my favourite genre of film, particularly when it's done well, but even when it's not done well, I I tend to take something out of them and enjoy them in some small way. High school movies. Yeah, just let that sink in. Just marinate in that for a moment. And as they pertain to this particular concept, I think they're a really good fit because in a lot of ways, what's great about movies that are set at high schools, in high schools, um, you know, using that environment as a setting, I think what's good about them is they really kind of use music to capture the era they're set in or the place they're set in, and those songs tend to timestamp or mark the films and celebrate them and give them energy. Because in a lot of ways, music is the one thing that is kind of really powerfully owned by, you know, the contemporary teenage generation. They're sort of the ones that kind of really drive what music is like and what is popular uh, in, in that sort of sphere. So when you're making films that are set in high schools or films that are set using characters in that age demographic, um, you you can get a kind of either a really potent sense of where it is, what time it is, you know, what you're trying to capture by use of the soundtrack. So if we're here to talk about and celebrate high school set movies and the music which drives them, there's really only one place to start. This is Beat City by the Flowerpot Men from Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
Absolutely fantastic song, fantastic film, and one of the great high school film setups in terms of plot, uh, in terms of structure, is the sort of day or night in the life of, and there are a couple of more which we'll get to as we go on, and a couple of different ones, um, structures that is, that we'll get to as we go on, but in terms of that day or night in the life of, none of these films have done it better than Ferris Bueller. It was and remains the gold standard in that regard, and, and I'm not sure about anyone else who sort of heard that or was listening in. Um, but even when I hear it, I can see the film. I can see the 250 California firing up as the drums do. I can see Ferris pulling away from the school. I can hear the sound mix framing the warble of the exhaust and the throttle just up a touch as the guitar builds underneath and the crane shot follows them out of the car park. The glare in the sun uh, from the sun hitting the camera and then they go to the aerial shots of Chicago, obviously. Just absolutely fantastic filmmaking, fantastic selection of the, uh, the song, fantastic, just just everything about it. Everything about it is absolutely perfect. And I think that what Ferris Bueller proves and why it has been so enduring and remains so popular, no matter the generation, even though it is now 36 years old, um, some of the best films play with genre or genres or play within them. Um, they're presented as one thing, but they're also something else entirely different. You know, George Lucas has famously spoken about this um, this concept when he said something to the effect of every story can be a Star Wars story or anything can be a Star Wars story. And in much the same way, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is actually a jailbreak movie and then it's a chase movie. And that's the way the films can see winning a day off school and evading the officious school principal. It just almost makes it the most relatable story ever committed to screen. It's just so bizarre. Like it's it's this silly, frivolous kind of throwaway. There are some earnest moments as the film goes on and our character sort of has this little arc of being the the truant and he kind of convinces us by the end that he's actually a nice guy and he's got his head screwed on. But the, is there anything more relatable than waking up and not wanting to go to school or work or thinking the night before that you don't want to go to school so you put in the groundwork? And then by extension of that, is there anything more satisfying when, when you're that age than faking the sickie you know, suckering in mum and dad, laughing at home while you know everyone, every one of your mates is at school. It's that great scene where they're at the baseball game and they remark that if they were at school, they'd be in gym. And then it cuts to Ferris's sister, Jeannie, 
having the same uh, thought or recollection as she drives by and, and no one's more angry than the sibling who doesn't get the day off. You've sort of put one over her as well. Really low stakes, relatable, fun sort of setups. The film has been forever copied. It's been never equaled, like not even occasionally, let alone consistently. No one has captured adolescence like John Hughes. And then more remarkably, no one seems to have (laughs) – they can barely do it if they do it at all. And he was able to do it so effortlessly. Like when you sit there and you think about what his his contribution to you know the medium of film is and the medium of storytelling is, I'm not sure if anyone has ever owned a genre more conclusively than Hughes did. There are filmmakers who have owned a genre probably as conclusively, a Hitchcock, you know, and his brand of suspense, perhaps you know Wes Craven and uh, his particular style of horror. There's 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 examples there of people where you think they are synonymous with a genre because they do it brilliantly well, and Hughes is absolutely in that conversation and I feel like sometimes because it's so long ago now and because he had this period where he was so incredibly hot and so incredibly in the zeitgeist and so incredibly on the money just churning out hit after hit after hit because it was so long ago and then because he had a period where he sort of didn't do a lot of stuff or wrote under a pen name he's kind of disappeared a bit and then as the generation who enjoy his films have gotten a bit older you know Yes, they love them. They kind of get spoken about less. But, like, they are as good today as they were when they're released. They are as strong today as they were when they were released. The themes in them still hold up. Um, The humour in in them still holds up for the most part. There's probably examples of different things. People would probably say 16 Candles has aged poorly, but I think if you take it for what it was, um, you can appreciate what it was and and what it does well and, and, and all that kind of stuff. In truth, there are so many huge tracks I could play, not just from this film, but from from his his catalogue of films from this era and from this genre. Um, to be fair, that could maybe be its own episode, to be honest. But, you know, the likes of Cameron Crowe kind of were a little bit on his coattails, but made a decent fist of the adolescent comedy drama. But as I said earlier, nobody ever really nailed the teenage experience like John Hughes was able to, and certainly not before. And, geez, you'd be... There are examples which we'll talk about later of post-Husian films in this genre that are excellent and that are very, very good, but for the most part, they are one-offs or contain a scene or an act. It's not two films a year or certainly one film a year that is just perfect in every way you could possibly conceive. But just before we close on on this particular uh, film, trying to underscore the filmmaker that and celebrate the filmmaker that John Hughes was. How about this for a little bit of a run? In 1983, he wrote Mr. Mum and the First Vacation, uh, the latter of which was adapted from his own um, sort of short story, uh, which I believe appeared in maybe the Harvard Lampoon, but it's sort of a, a semi-autobiographical tale of his um, holiday with his family. In 1984, he wrote and directed 16 Candles. In 1985, uh, he wrote and directed uh, The Breakfast Club and Weird Science, in 1986, he wrote and directed Ferris, and he wrote Pretty in Pink. In 1987, he wrote Some Kind of Wonderful and wrote and directed Planes, Trays and Automobiles. And that says nothing on his work, about his work, I should say, on films like Uncle Buck, Home Alone, Christmas Vacation, sort of in and around that time frame. So he had a run there for the better part of a decade where he was so incredibly strong again and again and again and again and prolific. 
like just remarkable. Um, so that's it on Ferris Bueller. I hope you like that one. We'll keep moving. Just to be clear, this isn't sort of a countdown. Like it's not a top 10. I've left out a couple of great films and films that I'd really, really like to talk about. I've left out some films that are better than other films on this list, but I don't necessarily think they had a better track or a track that better encapsulated the themes or tones of these films. So if you're listening along um, and you do want to get in touch or get involved, definitely message me with a film that I don't talk about maybe and a song from that film that means something to you or that you like or maybe a song that isn't a movie that I'm going to talk about that I didn't mention, uh, feel free to get in touch. Uh, The next uh, track we've got, we're going to move on now from a jailbreak film that's masquerading as a high school comedy to a high school comedy that's masquerading as a superhero film. This is the English Beats excellent song, Save It For Later, which featured, of course, in 2017's Spider-Man Homecoming.
So as that one wraps up, we, we spoke about John Hughes just before, of course. That was our first track, our second track, Save It For Later by The English Beat. Imitating John Hughes has proven to be just about impossible. People have tried to do it for sort of three odd decades and some things seem to take too long to make sense. And so finally, after five feature films and, and most of those pretty good, like pretty watchable and nearly 60 years in print, Spider-Man was cast and presented on the screen as a proper high schooler, a teenager. He was finally age appropriate. And then what that meant was dropping the age of everyone else in the cast all of a sudden made the whole thing make sense. It made his relationships with like the other Avengers when he would meet them, it made them make sense because at least on the screen, you're looking at a guy who is genuinely 10 to 12 years younger and then can genuinely sell awe and wonder and shock and immaturity. And that's something you can play with as a hero because you can grow him and he can he can have an arc where he becomes more mature, becomes more um, reliable, you know, loses that innocence or loses that kind of sheen of adolescence. Um, you know, and that's directly reflected in the film as well when you look at Rosemary Harris who played Aunt May in the Sam Raimi films, um, Sally Field played her in the Andrew Garfield movies, but Marissa Tomei plays Aunt May and all of a sudden, like, she's got more energy. So she gives the film more energy and she gives that relationship all of a sudden kind of everything just sort of seems to like fit just a little bit better. You know, Peter becomes 16, which means that Aunt May is in her mid forties, early kind of forties ish, you know, and that was always sort of the intended design and the strongest appeal of the character. He was a relatable and accessible avatar for the readership of the comics at the time of which was generally speaking, not not exclusively, but generally speaking, younger people. So all of a sudden they had a character who was their age, maybe had the same problems as them. Like he had adolescent issues to contend with and that was a very conscious, you know, um, storytelling, you know, uh, theory used by Stan Lee and the writers was to give him very relatable, very down-to-earth, very contemporary problems. And I think that's sort of why... Spider-Man as a character has always been so popular and always ever-present and endures. It's because he's always appealing because there are always people like him. And this song, back to the song, I suppose, was, was, so, was used so perfectly as well in the scene where Peter's, you know, excitedly, nervously, anxiously getting ready uh, to go to the school dance with the help of Marissa Tomei uh, and her, her Aunt May character. And then leads into one of the <laughs> genuinely great underrated plot twists and I mean in all of cinema in recent times like a genuine holy shit moment like I remember being in the in the cinema to watch the moment where Peter walks up to the door of the girl he's taking to the dance and the guy who opens the door is the film's bad guy and there's this sort of beautiful beat where the film is playing with the audience is does he know who knows does he know does Michael Keaton's character has he done something here? Like, is he, does he know Peter's Spider-Man? And there's this really fantastic kind of tension point where the film goes from upbeat, poppy, fun to, oh, no, no, this is serious. This is not good. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So brilliant. Um, written by the film this is, written by the duo of Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, um, the latter of whom made his name uh, playing Sam Weir in the really, really excellent but short-lived Freaks and Geeks in the late 90s. So, it sort of makes sense that those two, more than anyone who would tackle the character, for the big screen that is, before them, kind of instinctively knew 
where to take him and what to do with him and where to place him. And then the fruits of that decision are clear to see. It's it's not not necessarily in totality the best portrayal of Peter Parker of the three big screens with um, iterations that we've seen. There are elements that every one of the actors who plays him um, performs really, really well. But it's the one that comes off the best because, as I said off the top, it's age appropriate. He fits the surroundings. He, his relationships with all the other characters are better for it. And they have a longer runway to keep building the character to when they eventually move beyond him in however many years, in however many films. And then they'll have like this fantastic litany, this fantastic story behind him that have built to that point where when it's time to say goodbye, it becomes emotional. So very, very well done, a fantastic start and a really excellent use of uh, an era-appropriate song as well, an older song. We're trying to evoke Hughes. We're trying to evoke the 80s. So let's do a song that's kind of from there. Bit of fun. Absolutely perfect. Love it to death. The next song we go to, the next movie we're going to talk about, Tom Holland, in speaking about his portrayal of Peter Parker, has said that he used a bit of Michael J. Fox and his Marty McFly as the basis for his portrayal. So let's go to Hill Valley for our next great high school movie and one of the most iconic musical performances in film history. It's Marty McFly and the Starlighters with Johnny Be Good. Johnny be good. Who never ever learned to read or write so well. He could play a guitar. 
So again, uh, a little bit similar to um, Ferris Bueller when Beat City fires up and you can absolutely see the film. I know I can. I can absolutely see the shots. It's a bit like that where I can see the real tight Marty. Um, you know, it's a blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try to keep up. And he turns, starts playing. He goes, camera goes real tight on the guitar and then back up to him as he starts playing, you know, the, the all-time great Chuck Berry uh, track, Johnny Be Good. Um, filmmakers Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis had framed uh, this perfect film. I probably use that word a lot, but it is genuinely a perfect movie around the very simple conceit, and that was, would I have been friends with my parents in high school? And it's such a quaint and such a provocative, you know, idea. It's such a really cool way to frame um, the theme of the movie you know, our parents were once young. They were once the age that you are now. Who were they? What were they like? Um, you know, you see them and you've seen them a particular way for your entire life. And then there was a time before you. And what did that do to them? Or how did you affect them? You know, what were they like? Um, it's a timeless film. And that's a bit of a pun, but just about everything in it is is note perfect and spot on. Um, and in Marty McFly and the Starlight is playing this at the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance, it's actually one of the great payoffs in all of cinema. It is textbook setup and payoff. I once saw someone was talking about it and they said while it's a great scene, they didn't understand, like it's pointless. It's a great scene, but it's pointless. And I I just remember listening to this and it was on a fantastic podcast, by the way, like an absolutely brilliant podcast. And I, I was like, oh no, 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 no. No, it's like, no, it's the payoff from... Like, it's the most unexpected and brilliant payoff. It's from the scene earlier in the film where his band, the Pinheads, want to play his own school dance but get told, no, you're just too darn loud. You're not going to get that opportunity. And he's really hangdog and really down about it. And then in the most extraordinary twist of fate, he goes back in time, crazy concept, and he ends up with the opportunity that he wasn't given in his own time to play at the high school dance. And it's like, it's it's genuinely... When you think about it and you really nut it down, it's a great scene. It's an iconic use of the track. It is absolutely brilliant. But the actual layers of how they got to this moment are just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely first rate. Then later on, obviously, in the sequels, we relive this moment. And I suppose what the sequels do in playing with the formula and being meta and existing in their own world with their own callbacks if it wasn't so original at the time and such a clever way of, again, using that word, of framing the conversation about time, you know, the past, the present, the future, how they interact with each other, um, you know, the, the idea or the theme that history repeats itself. You've got, you know, like the fun little bits, the Strickland family are always men of authority. You know, um, it might be considered sort of lazy, which is unfair, but... It's that idea, history repeats, history repeats. And then Marty's obviously able to break that cycle and sort of somewhat inadvertently, but by all you know, the result is great, kind of set a new path for his family, which is, again, a nice, quaint, sort of fun way to wrap the film up, which at the time of its release in 1985 was just a one and done. Here's a small, here's a little movie. Geez, we hope it's good. We hope the audience likes it, but there's not... We're going to do a little tease, but there's not really any maybe anticipation that it becomes anything more than this. And in the end, it spawns, you know, a really fantastic trilogy. Um, and each of those films really lean on and play with one another uh, expertly, which is so, so good. Um, 
for the purposes of this film, Michael J. Fox did not sing the song. That was Mark Campbell of a band called Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. Johnny Be Good, of course, was written and performed by the legendary Chuck Berry. It was released in 1958, which is some sort of three years after the events depicted in the movie. Um, the song itself is sort of semi-autobiographical and replete with Chuck's just signature iconic sound. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, blues riff and B, as Marty says, and even now, you know, 65 odd years later, it's an, it's an absolutely iconic one of a kind, um, genre changing, music changing, ears prick up riff. It's just absolutely perfect. Um, a, a little while ago, there was actually this sort of faux, sort of faux manufactured controversy about Marty ripping Chuck Berry off and stealing the song. A, as if there's not this sort of is it called a causality loop? The idea that Marty only knows the song because Chuck wrote it. And unless Chuck writes it, Marty doesn't perform it. But there was this sort of faux manufactured outrage where people seemed to think or were trying to posit that they were really clever and they were just being obnoxious about the idea that Marty is sort of trying to, the film is rewriting Chuck Berry out of history. So incredibly tedious. It's just like the film is completely self-aware about what it's doing which is why you have the Marvin Berry phone call to Chuck Berry. It's completely self-aware. It's not trying to take anything away from the artist that wrote the song. It's celebrating the artist that wrote the song. It's celebrating the, the idea that Marty's kind of got up on stage and he's maybe like, he's not sure, you know, when's this song? I'm going to, what can I do? What can I play? He doesn't play the version of Power of Love that he performed or at the rehearsal for the dance in his own time. He plays something that he's kind of vaguely, again, era-appropriate. And it's great. It's fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant scene. Um, there was also actually this fun little theory a little while ago that the reason Marty's rendition sounds a little bit different, has a bit more bass, is because you know, it's almost as if it's in stereo, if that makes sense, um, as, as opposed to the original Chuck Berry recording, is because when Marvin Berry picks up the phone, phones at that time had no bass. They were very mono. So what Chuck's hearing is the song without the bass and he's just making do with what he heard it's completely ridiculous it's completely overthinking it but it's kind of fun nonetheless uh, at the same time now michael j fox fans among you would realize that wasn't the only high school movie that he starred in in 1985 the movie we just spoke about turned him from a tv star into a movie star the one we're about to talk about turned him into a wolf a teenage wolf a teenage wolf that plays basketball. It's maybe the most ridiculous thing ever put on screen, but it is absolutely amazing and I make no apologies for loving it. Um, Michael J. Fox plays Scott Howard in this strange little film about, uh, I suppose it's about puberty. I, th I think that's probably, that, that's what the film's talking about. I don't think it's, I don't think it's being more profound than that. Um, but it's kind of not important what it's about, if that makes sense. Like, his best friend, Styles, you know, wears a T-shirt at one stage that says, what are you looking at, Dick Nose? His other best friend, Boof, you know, really likes him. She's really good looking, but Scott seems completely oblivious for the most part of the movie. It's like, just go out with Boof. Boof's great. Boof actually likes you, and you actually like Boof. It's like, what are we doing? This film should have gone for five minutes. Um, you've got, like, a set piece in the film where Scott, who is underage, obviously in high school, is trying to buy beer, and this, it should not work. This set piece, this whole thing and the tension is he's trying to buy beer to impress the kids at this party, but the guy at the liquor store won't have a bar of it. 
it's effective because we all know the obstacle in front of him. We know what he's trying to achieve. Like we know the stakes. It should not work, but it does. There's another scene where he turns into a wolf during a game of high school basketball. And while initially weirded out, old Bobby Finstock, the coach, brilliant. Absolutely. He's like, he's got about six lines in the whole movie and every one of them is brilliant. He's just, his portrayal is so incredibly distant and disinterested until this really, really ordinary basketball player on his team turns into a wolf and better than that, turning into a wolf turns him into a superstar basketballer. And all of a sudden, old mate Bobby Finstock realises this could be good for me. So everyone on the court and in the crowd is kind of like a bit weirded out. She's turned into a wolf. And then they just get on with it and allow him to continue playing the game. Absolutely love it. Love it. Another excellent scene is the scene that I've taken this particular song from. Scott, whilst obviously a wolf, because that's, you know, that's his meal ticket at the moment, is being a, a teen wolf, um, decides to get on top of his mate Styles van and surf it. All the while, this plays. This is Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Everybody had an ocean across the USA. Then everybody be surfing like California. So we spent a little bit of time in 1955 with Marty McFly. We spent a little bit of time in, I suppose it's 1985, on the boards with Scott Howard. Let's spend a night in Modesto, California. It's 1962. This is Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs from the classic American Graffiti.
So that was Green Onion's been in a bunch of stuff. Fantastic song um, from the oft-forgotten but utterly brilliant jukebox-style night in the life of coming-of-age comedy, American Graffiti. Um, mentioned earlier with Ferris Bueller, that was Day in the Life of. Um, very, very similar in theme, very, very similar in sort of the structure of those two films. Um, made by George Lucas, of course, and following the critical and commercial failure of his sort of experimental-ish short film, which became a feature, THX 1138. This film was the result of a challenge issued to Lucas by his good friend Francis Ford Coppola, which was to make a comedy. Lucas drew on his love of cars, he drew on his own you know, uh, history and his own knowledge of growing up in Southern California, and he conceived a story which follows four friends the night of their high school graduation, a night which would ultimately turn out to be their final one together before embarking on the rest of their lives. All the while, this crazy night is sco- uh, scored, if you will, by the disc jockey uh, played by Wolfman Jack. The soundtrack features Bill Haley and the Comets, Johnny Maestro's 16 Candles, a couple of Buddy Holly tracks, The Beach Boys, Earth Angel and Johnny Be Good, song by Fat Domino, Fats Domino, sorry, um, The Big Bopper, and obviously the cast includes soon-to-be household names such as Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Cindy Williams, Harrison Ford as well, who obviously Lucas would have a little bit more to do with over the next handful of years. Um, in terms of placing the film, the soundtrack is so important um, because obviously having been made and released in the early 70s, you need to capture that uh, summer night in 1962. So it's not just about the cars, it's about the music because that's what that culture and that nightlife was built around. It was built around the cars and it was built around the music and it was built around you know, the, diner, uh, the, the drive-in diner and all that kind of those key kind of cultural geographical touchstones in Modesto. And that's what's important to these characters because that's the character's world. That's how they interact with each other. That's how or what's important to them. Um, and it's really, really effective. It's really, really, really well done. Um, the film actually takes place a month before the Cuban Missile Crisis. It takes place before the Vietnam War. It takes place before the assassination of JFK, which I think sort of rather deliberately sort of places it at, a, at an important juncture of like American history and, and culture and where this American society and particularly the adolescents sort of found themselves. You know, you had the carefree, very conservative 1950s and then <clears throat> we go into the sort of socio and political upheaval of the 1960s and that's why that music, some of it, is still very much a holdover from the 50s, that birth of rock and roll and then you can sort of feel it becoming cooler, becoming a bit jazzier, becoming something else, just as society was. Society was becoming something else and, you know, the bitterness caused by Vietnam sort of did it cancel out the exuberance and the excitement of the space race. You know, you had the situation with JFK's assassination, which was sort of, he was the youngest president they'd ever been at that time, I believe. You know, when he gets gets killed, the, the sort of country diverges a different way than perhaps where they were going and is that better is that worse you know who's to know it's it's all in the past now I think it remains the best directed of Lucas's handful of feature films and that's mainly because of how simple and restrained it is like it perfectly captures a time and a place and then 50 years on from that it remains a time capsule to both you know it was nominated for best picture it was nominated for best director it was nominated for best screenplay as if to illustrate how successful and how well-received it was. And it remains as watchable now as ever because of that brilliant soundtrack, timeless story, um, and both of which are are really accessible, really fun um, to engage in and to 
um, sort of give yourself over to. A couple of fun facts. The film was made for just $775,000, which, to be fair, in the early 70s was not an insignificant amount of money, but it would go on to gross over $150 million at the worldwide box office, as well as tens of million dollars in home video sales once that market eventually arrived. What that adds up to is one of the greatest profit-to-cost ratios in the history of cinema. It was a runaway success. And because of that success, because Lucas had kind of proven, geez, he's done this strange, experimental, weird, kind of inaccessible film that no one really gets, maybe some people appreciate, but it has no mainstream appeal. He's then turned around and directed this absolute monster mammoth hit in its own right. Then you factor in, geez, it's really cheap as well, so it's actually more successful, you know, relatively, again, and then that gives him the the tag of a filmmaker that is hot, is in demand, that people want to work with, which then leads to that little film, Star Wars. So whilst it couldn't be really any different in presentation to the film, which would ultimately make him a billionaire, it really has all the other hallmarks. And what is on display is this is a guy who knows how to make crowd-pleasing, entertaining, um, relatable movies, tell relatable stories. Um before we move on from this one, I suppose there's, there's always been this sort of conjecture with or about this film's relationship with uh, Happy Days. So this comes out and a few short years later, um, in 1973, this was released a few short years later, Happy Days arrives, which also features Ron Howard. It also features Cindy Williams. It also has this or shares this really unmistakable similarity in tone and presentation. And that begins in 1974. So in actuality, the show that would become Happy Days was an episode of this sort of anthology TV series called Love American Style, um, which aired on the ABC or ABC in the States in 1972. And that was written by Gary Marshall, um, a man who, I don't know if he was Lucas's friend at the time, but they would certainly become friends, you know, later on. Um, And the success of American Graffiti, the runaway success, saw ABC option this episode from pilot to series and then ultimately the rest is history. And then the other one you can kind of maybe link back to this is Grease. Very similar in some ways, not so much in other ways, but definitely leans into or tries to maybe cash in on the popularity in the mid to late 70s of like 50s nostalgia or making films now, you know, sort of Back to the Future was made in 85 for uh, 55 so in this one, you got Grease, which was 78, and I think that's set in the late 50s. So the original Grease musical, I think, was launched in like 1971, 72. It's sort of not ludicrous to suggest that the success of properties like American Graffiti and then Happy Days created an appetite for that kind of thing. Can we do something like this? Do we have something that we can plug into that appeals to the people that like this? And that film arrives in 1978 and it's the highest grossing film of 1978. So absolutely fantastic. American Graffiti, brilliant, brilliant film, um, underscored literally by a wonderful soundtrack um, and just an excellent example of this type of movie and what they use and how they use them and why they're so well received and so enduring. So we spent a night in Modesto in California. Let's spend one in Clark County, Nevada. This is Panama by Van Halen from 2007's Superbad.
Yeah, we're running a little bit hot tonight. I can barely see the road from the heat coming up. Reach down between my legs. Ease the seat back. So a film written in the late 90s by two mates, set in the late 2000s, but with a modern spin on that Hughesian high school sort of flavour of the 80s, like John Francis Daly. Rogan was a a Freaks and Geeks alumni, um, or alumnus, I should say, and this feels like a fun and a fresh evolution of sort of that film's or that TV show's reference for the genre to that point, and where Judd Apatow and his cohorts would then, or had, steered comedies in that era to that point and it's sort of like the best of both worlds in a, in a strange way it's this sort of hybrid of the way these films used to be with the way comedies of the day were which is sort of it's sort of interesting actually it forms this kind of frankenstein's monster of a film that um does work very very well and, and still sort of holds up and is quite funny to this day uh, he obviously wrote it with his friend evan goldberg they said they wrote it in, in the 90s uh, before eventually getting the opportunity to make it you know some 10 12 15 years later um, stars Jonah Hill clearly as we know relative unknown he'd only to that point in time had small cameos in films sort of 40 uh, year old virgin he was in briefly at a supporting role in the Justin Long film accepted uh, that same year I'm not sure which one came out first but that same year he starred in knocked up um, Michael Sarah as well you know he did he'd earned his fame uh, working pretty prominently on arrested development and like just really played the straight man to perfection like the the no frills really demanding sort of it's a really difficult role to be that sort of straight man but the film doesn't work without him it's kind of like a very thankless task he has a lot of great moments in the movie but he doesn't necessarily get that role doesn't allow the actor playing it to get those big moments Um, but without him his co-stars don't get them either so really really thankless task as i've just mentioned um christopher mince plass of course he made his film debut and immediately what a place in pop culture folklore, thanks to a ludicrous fake ID. Uh, another one to make her debut, at least on the big screen, was Emma Stone. Um, that was her, or this was her first uh, feature film. And Bill Hader got kind of like one of his first looks at features in a what would become a really, really good post-SNL career, whether it be on TV or in the movies. So a really quality kind of supporting role for him, not a massive role, but something that he could do a lot with and, you know, leave a good impression. You know, people would remember him or they would recognise him from an SNL, but you want to make that transition into features. You're obviously talking to and hoping to reach a bigger audience outside of America. And I think people who had no oversight of who he was from SNL would have come away from this in that small role and sort of thought, oh, no, that guy was quite good. And then the next time you see him, Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah. He was in Super Bad, yeah. So a really good and a really smart role for him to take and use as a platform to kind of keep on keeping on. It's it's really just like a 
a well done, slick, no fat on the bone night in the life of comedy. We've spoken about a few of them. It's well written, super funny. It has clear and considered stakes. Like it's it's not trying to be too big or too grandiose or have too many themes or too many plot points. It's just it's just really really concise. Um, it's actually directed by a guy by the name of Greg Matola, uh, who's played in this space on TV with the likes of Undeclared. Um, it's sort of sort of like a, a spiritual sequel in some ways to like a Freaks and Geeks, which makes it really fun and makes it really kind of, uh, for me, you know, a film that I, I really enjoy. Um, and in Panama, you've, you've probably got, you definitely have a song that's central to the hijinks of the film, but you've probably got the most memorable song from the film. If somebody, if you were to ask, you know, name me a song from Superbad, the scene in the cop car, you know, that, that would, most people I think would probably say Panama. So uh, great movie, great fun, great use of the song, great song. Um, yeah, one of my favourites, absolutely no doubt. So from a night outside of Vegas to a summer spent in Pennsylvania, this is Modern Love by David Bowie from 2009's Adventureland.
God. Got to be honest with you, I was really tempted to play Breaking the Law by Judas Priest, which featured in this, uh, again, we, we just spoke about Bill Hader. Bill Hader's obviously in this movie. We'll touch on him a bit later, but there's a great scene uh, with him sort of actively involved with that classic priest breaking the law from from British Steel. And I was I was very tempted to play that. But I think while breaking the law is fantastic and it's used fantastically in that movie, it's sort of incidental, whereas there are, there are songs in this film that are kind of more important to the film. Um, and there's one in particular which I probably should have played which we'll get to very shortly. Um, but there's a couple other real standouts. That's a great track. Um, it's kind of cheating, to be fair. Like, if anyone uh, is across this, kudos to you. Jesse Eisenberg's Brennan, who's the, the protagonist of the film, it's actually a college grad. It's not a high school movie. It's like a it's a, it's a college movie. He's, his character's returning home uh, for the summer and he takes a summer job at an, an amusement park. But... I've made an executive decision that it qualifies sort of via proxy, you know, on the basis of tone or feel. So just going to have to live with that. Uh, I will be accepting any complaints in writing um, if you want to protest this in some way. Not sure why you want to do that, but you're welcome to. It's such a good little movie and it's the kind of... It's the kind that streaming services and big blockbusters have sort of killed. There's just no market or business case for a film of this size anymore because... It needs a bigger budget than a streamer would probably be willing to pay to make it, especially for the five seconds of, you know, hot buzz it might get when it drops on the landing page on Netflix or wherever and then just three days later disappears. Um, and as a film, it's sort of hard to squeeze into a cinema schedule which boasts and needs to accommodate so many you know, $150 million plus blockbusters these days. I mean, if anyone's following the story at the moment, the the handshakes and the, the work behind the scenes done by, you know, the makers of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Barbie, Oppenheimer, they're all kind of cross-promoting each other's films in an attempt or because of a, a screen shortage, basically. There just, there just won't be enough screens for these films to make the sort of money they'd probably want to and rather than just move the film back two weeks to, to clear, say, for instance, Barbie, move the film back two weeks, give Oppenheimer screens for two weeks, that will burn itself, again, maybe a pun, but that will satisfy the bulk of the demand who want to go see the film and then when your film releases, Oppenheimer moves down the cinema chain to a couple of the smaller cinemas. It doesn't need to be shown as many times per day and you can take all the spots in the schedule vacated by that big film. But they're kind of not doing that. They're sort of releasing in and around and over each other. Like Mission Impossible comes out this weekend. Um, Oppenheimer and Barbie come out in like 10, 10 days or something or two weeks on the same day. It's just It's just crazy. But it's a perfect example of why if you release a film like this, where does it go? Does it go before those? Because the audience are waiting for them. Can't go out during them because those films are occupying all the screens. Does it go after them when people have maybe seen two or three movies in five or six weeks and are a bit fatigued and don't want to go back to the cinema? They feel like they've seen the movies that the cinema demands they go to to see. Um, so it's a really quirky thing. And I think they're kind of... I think, the, I think the industry is sort of poorer for it because we've just got this glut of real high-end, really expensive event movies and then sort of like almost nothing else. So it's, it's a shame. But this particular film set in 1987 and it probably leans into the time 
less than other period films do and certain films we're going to speak about or, or have spoken about, um, it sort of doesn't really – the fidelity to the period, the fidelity to 1987 is probably less important to this film than it would be to another film, say Graffiti or Back to the Future, the way they deal with, in Graffiti's case, the 60s and in Back to the Future's case, the 50s. Like the film is – you can see – even watching it in 2009, yeah, it's not sent contemporarily, but it's kind of how far back is it set? And that's sort of not terribly important, like to the, it's sort of, again, use that word, incidental. Um, it actually has one of, and the reason I included it on the list, it actually has one of my favourite or most favourite little character beats in in almost any film. So Ryan Reynolds has a sort of small-ish supporting role. You might call him maybe the fourth lead or fifth lead. Uh, he plays a character named Mike and he's the amusement park that Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart's characters are working at. And he's revealed to be a bit of a fraud. So there's this great moment. He's, he's a little bit older than the bulk of the staff and he sort of tries to dress it up as being a little bit more mature and, and he sort of tries to impress the kids, if you will, um, with a story that he jammed with Lou Reed. And in the past, he's had a relationship with Kristen Stewart's character, Emily, um, and there's sort of some angst and some some strangeness between the two as, as Eisenberg's character arrives and, and the plot kind of plays out. But again, they're sort of spending another summer in, their or- in each other's orbit, so it's a bit awkward. And earlier in the film, um, Mike has this moment where he plays it really smooth when he doesn't recognise Lou Reed's song, Satellite of Love, which is playing... Not sure if it's on the radio or on a cassette, um, but Brennan, played by Eisenberg, is sort of really excited that oh, you like you jam with Lou Reed, and he picks up that oh, you don't recognise the song, and he goes, "It's uh, Satellite of Love," and Mike goes, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." Play like tries to fob him off, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, no, I understand, yeah," um, which is really sort of okay. Where's this sort of going? But it's just a pick-up line. This line that he jammed with Lou Reed. It's just something that he says to impress the new crop of girls who come into the amusement park every year. Um, you know, I had this interaction with Jam with Lou Reed. And in their final interaction, Brennan from a little bit of a distance is getting his check and leaving the park for the summer to go back to New York and chase Emily. Um, he overhears him talking to a group of girls and refer to the song as Shed a Light on Love. And they come and have a bit of a chat and Brennan gently corrects Mike and they kind of share this wry sort of knowing look between one another. They both get it. They both get that he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he's, he's a bit of a bullshit artist. It's a really, really great moment. Um, I could have played Rock Me Amadeus, which is a great running do- uh, joke throughout the course of the film. Um, and again, a Freaks and Geeks connection. Um, it features Martin Starr, who was obviously on that show, was excellent. Um, also features uh, Bill Hader, as I mentioned, and Kristen Wiig plays Bill Hader's uh, wife in uh, – in a nice little supporting role for her before she really kind of kicked on and made it big as well. So excellent little movie, not really a high school film, kind of, um, like I said, spiritually, I think it's passable uh, for this particular episode, but to the letter of the law, uh, it shouldn't qualify, but um, I've just spoken about it, so uh, it's going to have to deal with it. Um, So the next song slash movie we're going to talk about is another Night in the Life of Type Tale. This is 2019's Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde. She must have really, really liked this song because it is almost the score to the film. This is Osaka Loop Line by Discovery. 
directed that of course released in 2019 she must have really liked discovery because the film also features uh the excellent um can you discover which is from the same album uh but i played osaka loop line because i prefer that one um wild 
I've spoken about it in the past when the film came out, got really good reviews. It did sort of okay. It didn't go gangbusters. Again, it's the it's the Adventureland problem where you make these films and these films become more and more expensive and the more expensive a film is, the more money it has to make to break even. The business case then becomes a bit of an issue because even if the film's really, really good, if it doesn't make its money back, the filmmakers aren't going to try to then emulate it. We spoke earlier about the reason Happy Days gets finally gets turned in from a one episode kind of anthology thing on a TV show into a TV show of its own two years later is because of this pop cultural movement created by another movie which is kind of similar so they can try to leverage it. Well, when films like Booksmart don't necessarily do superbly well at the box office, there's no great hurry, no great rush, no great appetite to make more films like this. You get them every so often, but again, I'll use the word, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh, so Olivia Wilde might not like the comparisons between her film and Superbad. You know, the idea when it came out, people were kind of maybe trying to make sense of it as the female Superbad. And I don't really know if that's such a bad thing because it's it's still a great film. And it's a really simple way of kind of informing the audience as to, so what's this movie? What's it about? Oh, it's kind of like that. Oh, well, I like that. So then maybe I'll go give this a chance. Like that's why you make those comparisons. I don't think people were being disrespectful in comparing it to Superbad because it's not exactly the same, but they do share some similarities. Um, the film stars Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever. They play friends who've been on the straight and narrow throughout high school, high achievers, maybe a little bit boring, um, but that changes the night of graduation where they decide to make up for lost time. Um, Billy Lord, who is, of course, the daughter of the great Carrie Fisher, um, has, a, has a great little role in this. She's bonkers and she's just she's brilliant. She absolutely steals the show in a performance which um, probably should have led to more work. You know, maybe that was a conscious decision on her part. She hasn't really done a lot of stuff. Um, most people would know her from, you know, a couple of very, very small um, or small role in the Star Wars sequels um, where she played, I think her character's name's Connex. She's like a lieutenant in the, uh, the, the Resistance Army. Um, working with Leia, played by her mother, of course. Um, yeah, maybe she just didn't want to do more stuff or she'd spent her whole life, you know, around her mother with you know, stories of the industry and she can maybe be in a, in a position to pick and choose what she does and what she wants to do. But like I said, the shame of it is she does something like this, which feels so much different to what we would have seen her do in the past, and she's great. So you're kind of like, well, don't keep doing the same thing, but maybe do... Maybe do more stuff, just smaller stuff. You don't need to be a movie star, but you can you probably have a pretty decent career if you want to, but maybe she just didn't want to. Uh, another one who did a really good job um, was Skylar Gizondo, um, who feels like he's been sort of underused in these type of comedic roles since a really sort of decent turn in an otherwise poor movie. She, he, um, he played Rusty Griswold's son in that just really lacklustre vacation reboot with... Um, Ed Helms. Ed Helms played uh, Rusty in that one. It was just, it was just a misstep. Just, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was just, just weird. Um, fun fact, I've just remembered this. Fun fact, I actually saw, I went to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in London and uh, Beanie Feldstein was there and, and she was there with a guy from like the kind of shy guy from, um, uh, I think he was in Pitch Perfect. They were off, I don't know, must have been, I don't know if they were together or something on a date. But yeah, they were there. They were seeing this this production, and you know who else was there? Actually, Sean Hayes from um, is that his name from Will and Grace was there. So it was this sort of surreal kind of moment where 
you, you see the, the younger actors and you're sort of like, I know them from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you figure it out. Yeah, yeah, cool, no worries. And then, yeah, Sean Hayes who was obviously on that you know, very popular show for a number of years and you're like, yeah, I definitely know him. Um, he actually did a good job. He played Jerry Lewis. Was it a TV movie? I'm just trying to remember. That was years ago. But he was pretty decent in that. Um, you know how, another fun fact, Benny Feldstein, Jonah Hill's sister. Yeah. I don't know who's listening to this, so I don't know if you know that or not, but Jonah Hill's sister. Makes sense. You see, when you know it, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I see it. I get it. Um, so fantastic. Really, really good film. Uh, only a couple of years old now, 2019, that one came out. If you haven't seen it um, and you sort of don't mind films like this, really, really recommend it. I think it's a really good watch and um, you'll no doubt be able to track it down on one of the streaming services, but uh, a good, fun sort of little film, like I said, the type which uh, don't really get made often enough these days because of all sorts of various forces and issues um, you know, surrounding them, which, again, I'll use the word. It's a shame. Our next film is a brilliantly bizarre, surreal farce of a black comedy, which is sort of a cousin to John Hughes's films of that era. This is Elizabeth Daly and her song One Way Love from the film Better Off Dead.
you know, you've just listened to that. If you if you didn't know, you wouldn't know, clearly. But Elizabeth Daly, who also played Dottie, who was uh, like Pee-wee's tomboy girlfriend in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, um, she voiced Tommy in uh, Rugrats. So now you do know that. Scrub back a little bit, listen to it. And that's uh, – she also did a lot of other, other stuff, clearly. But um, – yeah, Tommy in Rugrats. And once you know that, you'll listen to that song and go, oh, yeah, she does too. That's that's Tommy. That's Tommy, all right. Um, good little fun song, sort of a little bit like the film in some ways, Over Before It Outstays It's Welcome. And a kind of cool throwback to the kind of good old days of the movie had the song tie-in, like the credits song. We still do it a bit these days, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it certainly still happens, but nowhere near as often as that, like, vertical integration sort of model of the past. Um, the film has to have a song which can play on the radio to advertise the film. And it, it, it needs to have the title of the film in it because otherwise people won't know what it is and that's going to be a really crucial pillar in our marketing. And, yeah, it's, that is true. There's actually a great story of involving Back to the Future. So I don't know if it was Amblin, who were the production company, or Universal, who were the distributor. Universal obviously had the music arm, so maybe it was them. They probably worked together. But they commissioned Huey Lewis to write a song for Back to the Future and Huey in turn gave them The Power of Love, a song you might recall has absolutely nothing to do with the film. It has nothing to do with the concept of time travel and nothing to do with time itself. But they must have liked it fine enough to sort of use it prominently in the movie and ask him, you know, probably, can you give us another song? Can you give us a song that actually has something to do with time, something that we like is actually relatively so related to the fucking movie Huey, please. So Huey probably thought, ah, shit, because I've actually got to write a song. I can't just can't just flip through these tapes and see what I've got lying around. I actually have to write a song. So he did, and he wrote back in time. You know, it's an inferior song to Power of Love, but it's a better fit for the movie. Um, so <laughs> if films like, we're talking about Better Off Dead, if films like Sixteen Candles or Ferris Bueller you know, films of that type, if they're pop songs, almost effortlessly catchy and likeable, this film is something all on its own. And that's great because it's unique. While it oftentimes looks and feels and sounds like the films whose popularity inspired it, you know, the types of films that were so popular at the time and so in vogue that every studio would feel like we've got to have a movie like this. We have to make our own Brat Pack or John Hughes type film. This is just more bizarre, it's more eccentric and it's more weird than really any of those films. And that's, I said it, but that's a good thing. It's almost like the writer Steve Holland was asked, Steve, Matt, can you, can you whip us up one of these John Hughes high school? Like, we've got to have this movie, you know, not a big budget, but something we turn around quickly, chuck on cinema screens, you know, low investment, hopefully high outcome. And he's just gone, yeah, I'll make you a high school movie, all right? <laughs> and what he turns out is this eccentric, strange, bizarre, downright weird, just crazy trip of a film. And comparing it to Hughes, like a lot of his stuff is kind, like they're ultimately warm films and they're telling stories of growing up and learning life lessons. And while this film is sort of like, it's not trying to do that, like it kind of does that, it does it through the lens of a black comedy. And the plot is simple enough uh, John Cusack plays the uh, the main character, Lane. Lane likes skiing. His girlfriend dumps him for the captain of the ski team, the ski jock. He tries and he fails to win her back and becomes suicidal. 
Uh, he, he even attempts to take his life a few times in these comical sort of um, scenes, which, like, it sounds really dark, but it's not. Like, it's so absurd that it's it's funny. Um, anyway, Lane's best friend, a guy, a guy by the name of Charles DeMar, who's been at the school for, like, seven or eight years, so he's in his early 20s. He's still at the high school. He suggests, why don't you just challenge the guy, you know, the ski captain, to race down the biggest mountain in town, the K-12. So whilst he's sort of preparing for this and trying to do this and building up to this, um, <laughs> he begins to sort of fall for fall, fall, fall or become acquainted with like this French exchange student who lives next door, um, who's probably a better fit for him than his ex-girlfriend ever was. He ends up having the race down the mountain. He beats the jock. He gets the girl. And the film wraps up in a tight 97 minutes. Tight. Podcast would be longer than that. Ridiculous. Like, there's a six-minute subplot in this movie about a paperboy hunting down Lane for $2. It's ridiculous. It's perfect. There's a there's an army of bike-riding paperboys that chase him through a park at night in this really, again, surreal, like, <laughs> crazy, like, thriller-type moment. It's, just, it's fucking brilliant. There's a, a couple of drag races. Lane pulls up at the traffic lights next to these Korean brothers from school, both dressed like famous sportscaster Howard Cosell. And one of them's doing like a Howard Cosell impersonation over a loudspeaker as they're doing these drag races. Um, <laughs> his mum can't cook and she's conserving up more and more ludicrous things. His brother's like a little horny weirdo. It, it is surreal. It is eminently enjoyable. And mainly because of how much dare it has. It could have been safe. It could have followed the formula perfected by Hughes and others. But it sort of wants to be its own thing and it wants to have its own character and have its own flavour. And it's so much better for that. And credit to Cusack because I really can't think of anyone who would have made this film work like he did. This sort of, who would have had that sort of disaffected kind of, there is a charisma, but he's kind of not a leading man. He's not, like, he's not cool as such, but he's kind of likeable, even though he's he's a bit bit strange, a bit off, kil- uh, off kilter. Um, funnily enough, I think. Uh, I think Cusack actually, he's got a better relationship with the film now, but I think at the, like at the time he hated it. Like he accused the director of betraying him and lying to him about what it was and what it would be. He They apparently screened it somewhere and he got up and left after 20 minutes and had a blow up with the director and um, yeah, he just didn't like it. And like I said, I think now he's maybe a little bit warmer on it, but um, it's just so funny that like it's, I can see why, like it's such a risk. Like, it could ruin careers, but at the same time, because it's memorable and because his performance in it is memorable, I think ultimately it's beneficial for him. Um, and then more, I suppose, if, if people listen to the um, the plot synopsis I just gave, it was brilliantly spoofed by an episode of South Park however long ago. Uh, so now we move on to 2004 and to Tina Fey's brilliant Mean Girls. We've all seen it. I assume we all like it. This is One Way or Another by Blondie. I'm 
just a good movie, isn't it? It has the spirit of those classic American high school films, which for so long were almost a genre of their own, but coming out of the 90s, that genre kind of had evolved and it needed to be it needed to be reset. And this isn't maybe specifically the film that did it, but it's probably a really significant film in resetting that culture and the tone of those films or these types of films. I mentioned the word evolution and that genre had evolved. And while films of the era were sort of less about characters growing up, you know, and growing in general, um, they were more about like a manic night or a manic party. Like think about American Pie, think about Can't Hardly Wait, think about kids are a bit older and go. But those sort of films, that's that's what these had become. They'd become like riots, like riotous nights out, which, which is perfectly fine. It's not a criticism, but that's just what they'd become. They'd become less about the characters and more about um, the atmosphere, if you will. Uh, again, not necessarily a bad thing. And then there were those other films in the mid to late 90s which had sort of taken another bent and they were adaptations. So adaptations of Shakespeare or Jane Austen or – other novels or all sources like Clueless, I think from memory, Clueless was Emma. Ten Things I Had About You was The Taming of the Shrew. Cruel Intentions was a bit of fun, but it was like an old French novel, um, Dangerous Liaisons. And in its own way, this period was a clever way of taking those established, readily available stories or texts, texts and presenting them to a new audience. There'll always be kids, there'll always be adolescents. We spoke about that with Spider-Man. These films will always have an audience. So you just put the current crop of hot, you know, popular young actors and they do these types of films. There will always be that, you know, and particularly that era. You know, we spoke about earlier that nowadays it's becoming a little bit harder to do because of the scale of the industry. But up till this point, there was always that window. There are actors between the age of 24, um, 18 and maybe 25 who can do these types of movies. So... I mean, at least an audience that maybe didn't know what those films, they didn't know what Emma was or they didn't know what Shakespeare was or they didn't know know, whatever the text might be, recontextualise it, present it contemporarily, um, you know, obviously more famously as a straight adaptation, Baz Luhrmann did it with Romeo and Juliet in 96, I think that was. Um, So Mean Girls itself was actually inspired by, kind of partly based on uh, Rosalind Wiseman's 2002 self-help or sort of guidance book for parents called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And Tina Fey was obviously taken by the way Wiseman framed a conversation about the relationships and cliques of teenage girls. This is definitely Lindsay Lohan's best film. It's probably one of the reasons why Tina Fey got to do 30 Rock. It's not the only reason. She was obviously the head writer of SNL. Um, That definitely helped. But it's the film that gave Rachel McAdams a good sort of start. It was Amanda Seyfried's first film I think um and I've always been a fan of Tim Meadows he's he's just so reliably great in these little cameos he, he was never really able to make it as the comedy leading man like a Adam Sandler was or a Mike Myers was out of SNL and, and obviously there's there's others as well but whilst he gave it a shake and it didn't work he really found his little niche just popping up in five minute scenes not even or having you know a couple of minutes of screen time, but just knocking it out of the park, and he does that here. He's the he's the principal. So, uh, absolutely great film, fantastic film, um, and it came along at a really interesting time for the genre, and sort of like I said, kind of reset it, and not necessarily immediately, but what we see later on down the line is I think the influence of this film 
not being as raunchy, not being as horny, not being as out and out, um, sort of not depraved is not the right word, but moving away from that American pie type thing and then back towards more earnest, more mature, um, you know, themes and tones and, and character work. So important, yes, very good, yes, moving on. Um, I mentioned this one, I think, just before. Did I check my notes? I did. Um, is Can't Hardly Wait a good movie? Not particularly. But it's very much a film of its time. Blink-182's Damn It is both a great song and very much a song of its time and unsurprisingly found its way onto this soundtrack. This is Blink-182 and Damn It from Can't Hardly Wait. a good song so uh this one set at a party and because it's 1998 and she's in the movie everyone is super and very understandably into jennifer love hewitt it's just another one of those night in the life of slash one crazy night type stories um and a kind of american pie precursor it was made the year before uh jennifer love hewitt's joined in the cast by seth green uh ethan embry um who people would know from probably he was in Vegas Vacation. He was in Empire Records. He's done a bunch of stuff. I think he was in That Thing You Do, which is a 
not a bad little movie. Again, the sort of movies that doesn't really get made anymore. Um, and in a really cool, like, fun blast from the past, uh, Charlie Cosmo, who was a young guy who'd sort of grown up on screen. And, you know, he was kid in Dick Tracy. He was one of Robin Williams' kids in Hook. Um, he has that great scene on the plane with Robin Williams where um, Peter hadn't come to his baseball game and they're flying to, to London. And uh, he's drawn this picture of them all, like, falling out of the plane and, uh, he hasn't given his dad a parachute. Like Rowan Williams has this crazy goes, where's my parachute, Jack? Is this, I don't know. I just always like that little scene. It's really well acted and really well done. Anyway, Can't Hardly Wait is a bit formulaic, but it's sort of fun all the same and features this truly great kind of truly 90s track and it, the, the two things sort of go hand in hand tonally um, and sort of exist with one another. Uh, and, and I think it, at the end of the day, the song really does sum up the theme of all these films and the theme of this film and the theme of this genre. Um, well, I guess this is growing up. So that's part of the reason why I chose that particular song. So we're going to move on now to The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Now, this needs a little tiny bit of setup. So for this one, I could have gone with a few different songs. I could have gone with Come and Eileen, which is in a memorable scene in the film. I could have gone with Heroes. David Bowie again, which is sort of probably the song from the movie, the scene where they're going through the tunnel and it's that that kind of trailer moment, if you will. But I've gone for something a little bit different. So this film, or the events of this film, were set in 1991. Ten years earlier, New Order played a series of really unassuming gigs in New York. And a year earlier than that, Ian Curtis had died, um, you know, their lead singer, and he'd really left the band or his death had really left the band in this state of flux. They were meant to be um, embarking on a US tour and this was going to be hopefully something which broke them into the really lucrative US market. But his death, you know, put the kibosh on that and the tour was done and maybe the band was done. But a year later in November of uh, 1981, November 18th, during a nine-song set at the Ukrainian National Home in New York... The band were previewing their debut album as New Order called Movement and they dropped this song, a rough and a raw version of a song that wouldn't actually be on that album and it wouldn't actually be released until May of the following year. This is New Order's first masterpiece. This is Temptation.
though, that's it's such a special song and it's such a special performance of that song for the reasons I've sort of outlined and are going to continue to outline. But for me, I think it's a fun mirror of a lot of the themes, you know, these rites of passage, coming of age films have. You know, each of these movies, and particularly if they're good movies, have the moment that their protagonist grows up or has an awakening of some kind or finds themselves. And this performance, it might have been the, one of the very, very first, if not the first public performance of this song, I'm not, not 100%, but this performance of this song, and the reason I picked this performance of this song is because it's almost the precise moment that New Order stopped being the band that Joy Division were going to be and became the band that they'd become, if that makes sense. Joy Division was no more, and here, in 10 minutes, almost in real time, is the birth of New Order and a sound so fresh, so raw, so significant, so influential. It is, it is brutal, it is beautiful, it is mesmeric. There'd been nothing like this until one second before the song started. And you listen to this version of this song, played live in front of an audience, maybe for the first time, it's not even on this album they're previewing and they're trying to sell. But this is the song that leaves the impression. And they haven't got it all down. The lyrics aren't right. The lyrics aren't what they'd become. The cut, Like the guitars had that classic New Ordery, like no one in the band knew how to tune a guitar. So the bands, are, uh, the guitars are like kind of out of tune. And there's no doubt the studio recordings and the studio versions of Temptation are better and they're cleaner. But this has just got such a sensational, like ethereal, significant quality to it. And you listen to the song and it starts off a bit rocky. But as it keeps going and it keeps building and it keeps, you know, it's finding its feet. It's finding its rhythm and they're finding their sound. And the song, it's not afraid of making mistakes. It's not afraid of taking risks. It's not afraid of being its own thing. Something, like I said, which is central to these types of films. And in the case of this song, in the case of Temptation and in the case of New Order, everything they'd become as a band is there. And maybe for the first time, but it's there in embryonic form. Barney's unique vocals, Peter Hook's inimitable bass, Gillian's guitars, the fucking the drum hits. Everything they'd become is here. And almost for the first time it's here. Just like when you're a teenager. Everything about the person you become is sort of there being teased out. Slowly but surely, some parts emerging quicker than others, others like the vocals or the lyrics taking a little bit longer for you to find, but everything about the person you'd become, everything about the song that this would become is there and it's just being fleshed out slowly but surely and it's it's really beautiful to kind of interpret it that way and you're, you know, shot by Taras Shevchenko, preserved, they publish it on different things and it's on YouTube, the whole set. Like I said, this song isn't on the album they're previewing. It's a song that they've obviously written after they've done the recording. But this is what they are. Movement's like, it's an okay album, but this is the song that leads to, you know, power, corruption and lies. And this is the song that leads to them becoming a really significant band and having a really significant sound. And in this 10-minute clip, you hear it happening in real time. It's just, it's so incredible. It's like a... It's like a time machine come time capsule. It's just phenomenal. So as for the film itself, um, you know, the impression you get in the early going of Perks of Being a Wallflower are that it'll be about an introvert who comes out of his shell. He's the shy kid who learns to stick up for himself and all that kind of stuff. 
And it is that on the surface. But it also actually deals with these really powerful emotive themes of grief and drug use and sexual abuse and sexuality in a really grounded, almost sentimentality-free way. You know, sometimes it's actually brutal how blunt the film is and how mature the themes are. And in some ways, it's a little bit like The Breakfast Club in that case. You think you're watching these silly, smart-alecky kids and I... And you're sort of happy for that film to be this carefree high school romp. But what it's actually doing is capturing adolescence on the lip of adulthood. And, you know, it's hard for the characters. It's hard for people that age. It's hard for some to be carefree. And it's hard for some to fit in and deal with what life throws at them. And it's hard for some kids to rationalise that my life might be easier than your life or your challenges might be more significant at the moment than my challenges or what's going on in your home life or what's going on in any facet of your life that isn't on display outwardly in this, you know, sometimes brutal environment that is high school as everyone's sort of growing up in front of each other and and the like. Um, so, you know, some of these films are about getting the girl or getting into the party or getting into the party to get the girl. And this film is about navigating that point in your life where you're figuring out, who am I? So that's why I chose Temptation and that particular performance of Temptation because I think that they really marry up, like, really beautifully. Um, it was actually a really good film too for Emma Watson to take, you know, right off the back of the Harry Potter film. She does this little film about kids in high school, which is a wholly different take on growing up, you know, and not just because the obvious reasons, you know, fantasy versus reality, you know, the, the high high-end sort of Harry Potter nonsense versus the really grounded reality of this film. Um, you know, the stakes and scale of the films are obviously you know, clearly different, but emotionally it's really, it's a really good role for her. And I think too it's important because you're only age appropriate for these roles for certain windows. She couldn't wait five years to do a film like this. An example I've got is that Jennifer Lawrence has got a new film. I think it's called um, No Hard Feelings and it looks a little bit not risky businessy, but the idea that she's a more mature, travelled, sort of you know, active, extroverted personality and she's trying to coax something out of this younger guy. And I don't know, that's all I know about the film, but he seems to be a bit young. Like, the, the, I don't, there's something about the dynamic of the film where, like, she's a really fun actress and I find myself thinking, have you taken this film now because you didn't do a film like this five or six years ago where you were more age-appropriate to do a film like this and you would have knocked it out of the park but you were doing maybe slightly bigger movies for whatever the reason might be. I mean, you've got to strike while the iron's hot and, um, you know, set yourself up. So no no judgment on my part there. But, like, it feels like you've sort of – are you doing this film because you think you've missed the boat and you should have done one of these films years ago? And that would have been the part that a lot of actors and actresses have taken where they do the kind of late teen, early 20s, like comedy, because you, you can't do that in you can't do that in your late 30s, late 20s, early 30s. This isn't 90210. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a fascinating one. So I think she did it. At, the film came along at the perfect time for her and she was a really good sort of choice for the role um, and really good in the role. And apart from maybe Little Women, it might actually be her best performance in a film. So um, she was really good. You got Ezra Miller and Logan Lerman, they round out the trio of leads. So you've got like Hermione Granger, The Flash, and Percy Jackson, which is kind of funny. Paul Rudd uh, has a nice little cameo role as the teacher at the school, um, which again is kind of funny because uh, he'd done Clueless. Um, it was this 20, sort of 12 ish, so what, 
17 years earlier. So that's kind of cool to kind of see. It's a bit um, – um, Matthew Broderick does Ferris Bueller's Day Off and then 13 years later he does that silly film Election where he plays the stuffy, officious teacher and it's kind of like a companion piece to Ferris Bueller in a fun sort of inverted kind of way and this is a bit the same. Um, good film and a great song which share themes of dealing with grief and loss and growing up. So absolutely outstanding. Love it and hope you loved it as well. Um, so we've covered Night in the Life of Angles. Let's go from earnest teenage melancholy to a couple of kids let loose across Europe. You probably know this song. It's a bit of fun. Scotty doesn't know that Fiona and me do it in my van every Sunday. She tells him she's in church, but she doesn't go. Still, she's on her knees. And Scotty doesn't know. Oh, Scotty doesn't know. So don't tell Scotty. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. Fiona says she's out shopping. But she's on her knees. Scotty Doesn't Know by Lustra from the film Eurotrip. And uh, a little bit like Can't Hardly Wait. Is it, a great, is it a great movie? No, like not really. Is it a great movie to watch? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like it's the kind of film that I'll watch if I come across it. It's like, and I'm not, <laughs> I am comparing it. It's a bit like Shawshank Redemption where you're like, oh yeah, where are we? Where are we in the movie? Are we Fred Armisen been on the train yet? You know, the Vinnie Jones bit yet? Have we done the... 
you know, are they in the, the Vatican yet? Blah, 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 blah. Like Scotty doesn't know. Have we done that bit yet? It's, it's just, <laughs> it's just a fun little film. And this song is like, is the centerpiece. Like it's funny in its own right, you know, especially given the Matt Damon cameo, um, which is actually kind of like the way that scene plays out is almost a little bit better off Deddy in some ways. You've got, you know, the, the protagonist standing at this house party watching this guy sing a song about how he's been sleeping with his girlfriend around behind his back and everyone else is really into it and the audience is sort of laughing at our lead character's expense whilst he just sort of stands there stoically emotionless watching on. And it's it's kind of the film in a nutshell. It's quite clever and self-aware and very silly but very funny all at the same time. Um, why, is Matt Damon, <laughs> why is Matt Damon even in the film? Like apparently I think he was just mates with the writers and he just happened to be either in town during the shooting of this segment of the film or he could get into town to shoot this segment of the film and he did it and just got up and left. He's in three minutes of the movie in arguably, you know, the, the most iconic scene in the movie, you know, um, singing the song that's kind of driving the movie and then just disappears. It's quite good. I, I quite like it. Um, and then this, this with this song, and this is part of the reason why I picked this as better films, you know, in this genre that I'm not even going to touch on or talk about. But part of the reason why I picked this is because the song and what the filmmakers do with it is something kind of completely unexpected and brilliant. The plot keeps recycling it through a series of like remixes and the film follows the characters across Europe. And so every so often obviously pops up. They do like this weird like Russian trance remix at one point, which is just brilliantly fun. Um, and again, sort of like better off Deddy, this kind of almost surreal um, sort of happening of events, which is great. Uh, they obviously realise when the band turns the song in that it's like it's actually a pretty decent track. So not let's not just play it once at the start of the film and disregard it. Let's like let's really use this film, this song, one of the strongest points of this film. Let's really use it. Uh, very clever. So in the end, the film is sort of the right kind of lowbrow, the right kind of raunchy. It's sort of the right mix of absolute nonsense and. I'd say it's almost certainly got a special place in the hearts of anyone who was sort of right in the in the wheelhouse, you know, maybe between 14 and 2021 20, when it came out in 2004. Anyone in that little that little window probably has a real soft spot for this film, um, which is completely understandable because I have a soft spot for this film. It's a really, really fun movie to watch and not something you go out of your way to watch, um, but something that when it comes up in conversation gives you a bit of a grin and a smile and kind of like it does capture the sort of high schooliness in a hyper realistic kind of way which is its own kind of style um but like i said can't say it enough just a really 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 fun film so we're going to stick with the road trip type theme and we're going to wrap things up with 2008's sex drive again like um what was the last one we talked about euro trip i'm losing the plot but like euro trip is it, is it a great movie? No. Is it an easy, fun movie to watch and digest and enjoy and then when it finishes sort of not really think about for a long time, if at all, ever again? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's all the film needs to be. It ticks all the boxes. It's got the awkward teen chasing his love cross-country. They go, as I said, the road trip type vibe. It's got the two friends who sort of don't really know that they're perfect for each other and maybe in love. It's got the contemporary soundtrack driving the plot and the pace of the film. It's got silly setups for for quick gags, which are you know executed really well, uh, the whole rum springer bit's really good fun. 
It's got Seth Green as an Amish car enthusiast. Um, it's got crude humor. Seth Green gives one of my favorite line deliveries of all time. And I genuinely mean that. He gives one of my favorite line deliveries of all time. The The main character comes in at one point and sees his brother's car, who he's stolen to drive cross-country, his pride and joy, the old GTO, the judge, and it has an issue, and they get some help from these Amish guys who love cars and know how to work on cars. And <laughs> he comes in and sees it in pieces. Seth Green tries to explain that it's in pieces because we needed to do this and remove this and fix this, and it'll be fine. We're going to put it all back to pieces, pit pack together. And the, the guy, the main guy, played by Josh Zuckerberg, he gets a bit fired up and he's, oh, you've ruined the car, you've broken the car, what am I going to do? He's going to kill me. And he says he's going he's gonna to fuck me with a roll of quarters. And Seth Green's line delivery of, what? He's going to do what? With what? I've done it no justice. It is brilliant. It is absolutely, every time I see it, it's the moment in the film, if it hasn't happened, I'm waiting for. And if it's past, if I kind of go, ah, oh, we've gone past that sequence of the movie, I'm, I'm like, fuck, damn it. Can I rewind it? Can I go back just to see that little scene? Can I bring it up on YouTube? I'll just bring it up on YouTube, watch that five-second clip, have a laugh, and move on with my life. It's got James Marsden in it, just having way too much fun. He's he's so great in such an unexpected role for him, um, but ends up being the perfect choice for this madcap, crazy older brother, and he has a really funny little end to his arc, which is sort of, again, unexpected, but just good value. Um it's sort of entirely in keeping with the post-American Pie, post-road trip um, sort of voice that these films had. I mentioned before that Mean Girls sort of reset things, not for every film. Mean Girls sort of reset things and we got Perks of Being a Wallflower and we got um, Booksmart and we got like The Edge of Seventeen. More thoughtful, more mature stuff, but we still had this residual sort of lag, if you will, that sort of spat out films like Sex Drive. So really good film, really fun film. Um, if you haven't seen it, I don't know if I can recommend it as such, but if you have seen it, you probably get where I'm coming from. Like it's it's not bad, it's not amazing, but it's funny, it's watchable. Um, it's, it's, it's just a strange one in that way. But I hope you understand what I'm, what I'm going for and what I'm, what I'm sort of trying to get across with it. So in closing, I really hope you've enjoyed listening along to this. If you have liked it, um, please let me know if you'd like me to do another one on another genre or a filmmaker or an actor or whatever. Um, please let me know. Uh, positive reinforcement is valued. Um, that's how we get another one. If enough people like this and sort of enjoy listening to it and want me to do another one, I'll do another one. So to close out the show, we obviously need to play a song from Sex Drive and we're going to go straight to the top. We're going to go to MGMT. What the fuck happened to them? They released one of the all-time great debut albums, then a fucking shit follow-up, and then have basically disappeared. That first album, my God. Like, it's the soundtrack to the late 2010s. Just extraordinary. And then have really must have been lightning in a bottle. Good on them. Um, <laughs> what was that, this idea that everyone's got at least one good idea? Like, everyone's got at least one good idea in them. What that idea, it could be big, it could be an album, it could be small, it could be nothing but they got one good idea in them. They obviously had that one album, which was just brilliant, and it featured this song. This is MGMT's Time to Pretend from the pretty decent Sex Drive. See you later.
Comfort 